What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Boy, what a week this is going to be. There's scheduled impeachment hearings on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Having gone through this last week, uh, you know, with uh, two different days that kind of blew up our show, and, you know, we just basically played the hearings for you, I'm going to try, and, and, you know, some of this will be dependent on exactly who's testifying and what the testimony is about, all that kind of stuff. And uh, certainly we'll play straight through the testimony when they're being questioned by the lawyers, you know, for for the two sides, um, because that seems to be really the the most revealing stuff. But I'm inclined, increasingly aggressively inclined, to um, offer my commentaries and thoughts and riffs and uh, even take your calls while the Republicans, you know, when they go to the five minute back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, when the Republicans are speaking, because it's become, unless they change their strategy. I mean, if their strategy becomes insanely entertaining, oh, that might be interesting. But up until now, the Republican strategy has been to uh, to either try to create moments where they can whine and claim, you know, grievance, this massive victimhood. The lead of that has been um, Elise Stefanik she would try to jump in and say something, and then Adam Schiff would say, you're out of order, and she'd say, oh, are you trying to shut me down again? You know, and uh, she knew. I mean, this was just pure performance. She was trying to create a clip that Fox News would play over and over and over so she could get herself reelected with Trump supporters in her district in New York. And it may have backfired. I mean, uh, this is the 21st district of New York State, and Elise Stefanik is a three-term congressperson from there. And this woman, Tedra Cobb, is running against her. Tedra, back in 1999, she's been, she's been living in, you know, in this area for over 30 years. She met and married her husband there. She's raised two kids there. Uh, in 1999, she started a community health agency through the St. Lawrence Initiative to provide access to critical health screenings and treatment. She has a daughter with a pre-existing condition. She had to have surgery, back surgery, when she was young. In 2002, Tedra Cobb, who is running against Elise Stefanik, in 2002, she got she ran for for a seat on the county legislature, and passed some substantial ethics reform and a substantial and a successful initiative to lower the cost of prescription drugs. And now she's running. And it says on her website, uh, tedricobb.com, 
Now Tedrick is running for Congress because Elise Stefanik has repeatedly voted against the interests of northern New Yorkers and Americans by voting to kick millions off their health insurance, to raise the cost of prescription drugs, and to allow insurance companies to discriminate against those like my daughter, Ada, who have pre-existing conditions. So most people, I think, didn't even know who Tedrick Cobb was. But when Elise Stefanik went nuts last week with her, oh, you're not letting me talk, Mr. Schiff, uh, stuff, George Conway... Kellyanne Conway's husband maxes out, gives the maximum donation allowed by law to her, which I think is 2700 bucks or whatever it is, and, uh, and then tweets to everyone. He calls Stefanik lying trash, and he tweets to everyone, support Tedra Cobb, and she raises like a million dollars in a day. So things are getting interesting, shall we say. But the thing that really has me scratching my head this morning and I would love to get your thoughts on this. Is Trump going to Walter Reed on Saturday? I mean, you know, Trump usually goes golfing when he has nothing on his schedule on Saturday. This is the laziest president in history. He spent most of his presidency playing golf or in one of his hotels. So why did Cadet Bone Spurs go to the hospital? I have a theory about this. And I shared this theory on Twitter over the weekend, and, you know, a number of people said, well, yeah, maybe, and a number of people said, no, you're nuts. But, you know, not a lot of, not a lot of people are buying this story that Trump just woke up and said, you know, I'm sitting here in the White House, and down in the basement, there is a fully equipped, essentially, emergency room, right? I mean, you know, if he wanted to have some blood drawn to find out what his cholesterol is like, They've got that in the, in the basement of the White House. If he wanted to get uh, an EEG and find out how his heart is doing, they can do that in the basement of the White House. They've got a portable unit. If he wanted to have uh, his blood pressure taken or if he wanted somebody to listen to his heart, they could do that in the basement of the White House. They've got a clinic and they've got a full-time 24-7 doctor who basically lives there. I mean, you know, he's, he's completely on call. Trump did not have to leave the White House for anything other than some sort of major medical emergency or to set up a 25th Amendment way of getting out of being president without being impeached and without committing a crime and without being declared crazy. Let me lay this out for you. I mean, as I said, if if he had, you know, people are saying, well, what if he had a minor heart attack? Maybe he did. He could have gone downstairs in the White House and checked it out. Well, maybe he did. Maybe he went to his doctor in the White House, and his doctor looked at the EKG and said, you need to get to the hospital. And by the time he got to the hospital, the situation was resolved. I mean, who knows, right? But here's how it works. The 25th Amendment, the 25th Amendment has been discussed a lot by Democrats and in the media in the context of the vice president and the cabinet getting together and saying, this guy is nuts and out of control. And therefore, we're going to declare him unfit for office, non-coppus menace, you know, not mentally competent, and uh, recommend that he be removed from office. That's always been a long shot. But the 25th Amendment, while it could provide for that, was actually written in 1965. It was written two years after JFK died. And it was to allow for 
I mean, you know, the, the question was, what if what if Kennedy had been shot? You know, if, I mean, he was shot in the back and he was shot in the head. Right. What if the shot in his back had not killed him? What if it merely knocked him out of service, basically, for a few months while he had to recover? And Lyndon Johnson had to become acting president. Well, you, you, we need a system for this. It's not in the Constitution. And so they wrote the 25th Amendment for a physically disabled president. That was the intent. So here's my conspiracy theory. And tell me if you think this is crazy or if you have an alternative theory. Trump had, I think you could safely say, the worst week of his entire presidency last week. His buddy Roger Stone, his longest political advisor, he's known Roger Stone for 30 or 40 years. Roger Stone was convicted on all counts. And by the way, several of those counts had to do with Roger Stone conspiring with Donald Trump, WikiLeaks, and possibly Russia. So Roger Stone gets convicted of, of what may be crimes that Trump was involved in. At least that's what the evidence suggests. He had two impeachment hearings, right? You had Taylor and Kent, and then you had Yovanovitch. And all of them made it look like Donald Trump is a criminal. When Yovanovitch was testifying, he tweeted an attack on her, thinking that that might take her down a peg over at Fox News. And instead, everybody, including Chris Wallace on Fox News, says, whoa, shouldn't have done that. And he's going, oh, my God, I screwed up again. And then Holmes, this this guy who was, you know, at the lunch with uh, Sondland, testifies, he's going to testify this week. He's going to be, you know, one of uh, part of the testimony that we're going to get this week is from Mr. Holmes. And Holmes testifies, you know, right up front and right out loud. Let me see when, when Holmes is coming. Well, maybe he's not this week. He te- anyhow, he testified before Congress um, that, you know, he overheard the, ha- the call that Trump Trump's right in the middle of this conspiracy. And then Rudy now is looking at a possible criminal indictment himself. And he's denying he did anything. But but Lev and Igor are saying, hey, you know, we were working for Trump, not just Rudy. Trump pulled us aside at the at the Hanukkah party at the White House last year in 2018. So this was, you know, 11 months ago. Donald Trump pulled us aside, Lev and Igor and Rudy, the three of us, and said, I'm going to send you guys on a secret mission to Ukraine to get dirt on Joe Biden. And Lev went on to tell several friends about it. So he's got a documented trail, and there were photos of it. So Trump has this going on, and he's thinking, okay, I'm screwed. How do I get out of the White House without going to jail? Well, the simple way would be to come up with a physical disability, see if they can find anything wrong or make something wrong or, you know, get the White House doctor to come up with something that he can say is wrong. So he can go to to Mike Pence and he can say, you know, Mike, turns out I've got a mitral valve misfunction and I just can't be president anymore. It's too stressful. It could cause a heart attack. So you need to invoke the 25th Amendment and declare me physically incapable of being president. And then I'll step down If you'll pardon me and the entire Trump crime family, and you get to be president, and I get to leave the White House without ever admitting that I did anything wrong, I'm leaving the White House for the same reason that I was able to get out of the Vietnam War. 
back then it was bone spurs, right? I'm, you know, it's now it's not bone spurs. It's a mitral valve misfunction or whatever, you know, or, or I've got a artery with a embolism or something, you know, he's going to come up with something. And so he gets to leave without being impeached. He won't go down in history as the guy who was impeached. He'll simply go down in history as the guy who was 73 years old as president and his age caught up with him and he just had to leave office. And he and his whole family were, were entirely part of, you know, Pence will do it the same way Jerry Ford did. Our long national nightmare is over. And so we don't have to dig back into that and keep reliving it every, every other day. We're going to stop the hearings. We're going to stop the investigations. We're going to stop the indictments because I'm issuing a blanket pardon. Now, in the case of, of Nixon, Pat Nixon, his wife and his kids, Trish and, is there another kid? I remember Trish and there was somebody else were not committing crimes, right? They, they, you know, there wasn't a Nixon crime family, although there were a bunch of guys with Nixon. But in the case of Trump, he's going to have to pardon the whole damn family. What do you think? Am I onto something? Albert in St. Louis, Missouri. Hey, Albert, what's on your mind today? Yes, Tom. The reason I call, I like your theory. I think that Trump had a third play here, a third rail that he was working on with this Ukrainian thing. Okay. Obviously, if he holds up the money, he can increase the pressure on on the president to make the statement, right? right. Of course, the hold up of the money helps the Russians, all right? Right. And, of course, he cripples the new president right off the bat. Yep. But and also dirties should... him up so that in the next election, right. the country may flip back to another, you know, kind of pro-Russian Poroshenko kind yeah. of guy. Or not weakens Poroshenko, the, uh, the, the guy preceding him. Anyhow, back to you. Yeah, he weakens the country. I mean, yeah. you know, there's no Yanukovych. way Ukraine comes out good in this scenario. Right. It's a lose-lose for them. But now he's he's holding up $390 million. And we know he's been pilfering money from all over the government for the wall. Right. Now you're sitting on $390 million. I think his ultimate play was before the, the, the year ran out, just before the year ran out, he was going to swing that money over to the wall. That's well, not impossible. Ever, it's not impossible. I, I mean, he intended to give it to him. I yeah, I, 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 the money. yeah, I mean, he had to steal money from schools for military children, right. from right. upgrading health facilities for active duty service members, from housing, from military housing on bases in the U.S. and over overseas that had rats and mold and asbestos and all kinds of problems that was supposed to be fixed and upgraded. Trump took all that money and threw it down at the wall. And so certainly, uh, you know, if he's willing to screw American soldiers, you'd think he'd be willing to take some money from Ukraine. That makes a lot of sense, Albert. Yeah, right. That's my idea. Have a good day, Tom. Like the show. Thanks a lot, Albert. Good to hear from you. Mike in Lameda, California, listening on KPFK. Hey, Mike, what's up? Hey, Tom. I've heard about this Walter Reed visit the first time this morning, and my immediate reaction was somewhat like yours. I thought laying the groundwork for a uh, leaving office to spend more time with his doctors. Right. But uh, I remember two or with his accountants (laughs) in his money bin (laughs) and his and his lawyers. And I have to have real ones this time. No, but uh, two weeks earlier, someone predicted that he would be doing something to harm himself, uh, you know, acting out uh, in a predictably delinquent fashion. And I think Friday was a prime example when he took to Twitter to threaten Ambassador Yovanovitch. Right. Uh, 
And I think maybe uh, one of the reasons for going to Walter Reed rather than staying in the White House is that they have access to diagnostic tools there, which they don't have at the White House, like a CT scanner or an MRI and complete, yeah. and complete blood tests. Yeah. So if he was experiencing sorts of symptoms which he normally would have uh, just sort of ignored and denied, uh, with that sort of uh, an exit plan in the back of his mind he says oh i'm feeling dizzy this morning i should go get uh, yeah. get the dust yeah it's entirely possible and in fact if that was the case uh, you know it, it, would, it would probably be either a panic attack which i think is the most likely uh which which comes across as a heart attack i actually i had a panic attack in my 30s in germany and i thought i was having a heart attack uh you know and i went to a hospital um or it could have been a minor heart attack i mean you know who knows um, but, Mike, I think, you know, there are very real possibilities. Mike, thanks a lot for the call. So was it that Trump had a panic attack or a very small heart attack, something like that, and figured, OK, what we've got here in the White House just isn't enough. I need to go someplace where there's something big like an MRI or a CAT scan, you know, some you know major diagnostic tools or did he come to the realization Friday that my goose is cooked? You know, I've got to have something that I can give to Mike Pence to get out of this. What do you think? Sam in Minneapolis listening on AM 950. Hey, Sam, what's up? Hey, Tom. I just wanted to mention that I think we know from the Michael Flynn indictment and several other indictments that have come out of the Mueller probe that Pence absolutely knew what was going on, and he's been intimately involved with these schemes. Right. And I think that the Democrats and, the, and the, the, the impeachment hearings really need to surface that evidence with the testimony, and it needs to be in public, it needs to be on camera, it needs to be hammered home again and again, such that it can be added to the counts of the impeachment proceedings, such that when it actually gets released, it's not just Trump being impeached, it's actually Pence as well. So there can be no backdoor deal with Pence to basically... Uh, right. It's a, that's a, strategically, that's a very, very, very risky proposition because yeah, I agree with you. There's just an overwhelming amount of evidence that Pence not only knew about this, but was in on it. I mean, you know, he had that meeting in Warsaw with Zelensky, with the president of Ukraine, and, and reiterated Absolutely. that he wanted, you know, investigations of corruption. And everybody knew that that was code for Joe Biden and Hunter Biden. But exactly. here's the thing. If they include Pence, and, and by the way, that might make Pence far more willing. There's two sides to this. Pence would be far more willing to go along with the 25th Amendment, get Trump out on a bone spurs thing, and, you know, just like Trump got out of the Vietnam War. If he thought that it was possible that if Congress keeps digging, they're, under, they're going to under, uncover dirt on him. So I think that strengthens my theory. But on the other hand, if the Democrats include Pence in the impeachment list, then that means that if both Trump and Pence go down together, Nancy Pelosi becomes president. That radically reduces the possibility that you're going to get 20 Republicans in the Senate to vote to remove them from office. So it could and, backfire and, terribly the on the Democrats. Include. Unless what? Sure. In, unless the proceedings surface the culpability of many of the Republicans in the Senate. Right. If, if there's, you know, well, some, and some of that is popping up here and there, too, you know. Uh, but, yeah, it's, it's, gonna, it's getting real interesting here, Sam. It's getting very, very interesting. Sam, great thinking. Thanks for the call. 
So do you think Saturday was act one in a three-act play where Donald Trump gets, you know, gets to skate with no consequences for him or his family? You're listening to Tom Hartman. Guys, remember the days when you were always ready to go? Now you can increase your performance and get that extra confidence in bed. Listen up. BlueChew.com. That's blue like the color blue. BlueChew brings you the first chewable with the same FDA-approved active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis, so you know that they work. You can take them anytime, day or night, even on a full stomach, and since they're chewable, they work up to twice as fast as a pill, so you can be ready whenever an opportunity arises. If you could benefit from extra function and more confidence where it counts, Blue Chew is the fast and easy way to enhance your performance. Blue Chew is prescribed online and ships straight to your door in a discreet package, so no in-person doctor visit, no waiting in the pharmacy, and best of all, no more awkwardness. They're made in the USA, and since Blue Chew prepares and ships direct, they're cheaper than a pharmacy. Right now, we've got a special deal for our listeners. Uh, visit BlueChew.com and get your first shipment free when you use our special code TOM, T-H-O-M. Just pay 5 bucks for the shipping. Again, that's B-L-U-E-Chew.com. Promo code THOM to try it free. Blue Chew is the better, cheaper, faster choice, and we thank them for supporting this podcast. Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal is with us. You represent the 7th District of the state of Washington. You're the first vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Rep Jayapal is your Twitter handle. Congresswoman, I'm curious, what's at the top of your agenda right now? What are the things that you're paying attention to in Congress and in the country and your thoughts on what we saw in the impeachment hearings? Well, obviously, that's the first thing I'm paying attention to is what's happening in the impeachment inquiry and the hearings. And I think what we're seeing, Tom, is just over and over again, corroboration by very credible witnesses, including many who were appointed by Trump into those positions, who are talking about exactly the abuse of power that this president has wielded using government levers by asking a foreign country to dig up dirt on a political rival, get involved in the election. And, in you know, his leverage for that is aid, congressionally authorized aid that the country desperately needs in order to fight the aggressors, in this case, Russia, that Ukraine has been fighting. And so this abuse of power, betrayal of national security, and pure out bribery and extortion is unacceptable for somebody in the highest office. And I think that is, that's what's come out in these hearings in multiple ways. But honestly, sometimes I tell people that the best witness testified very early directly to the American people and is the most credible of all, and that is Donald Trump. He told us he did all of this. All that we're seeing now is a mosaic being filled in with lots of colors. Yeah, it's really extraordinary. And I've been getting calls from conservatives who've been watching Fox News who are saying, well, you know, it just proved that there's no there there and everything's fine. And and I'm like, you really think, you know, like if a Democrat became president and was running for reelection and they reached out to, say, France and and said, you know, we're going to we're going to hurt you in some way if you don't find some dirt on my opponent, that that would be okay with you. And they're like, well, I guess it's fine. 
when Ambassador Taylor made exactly that point, he was asked by, I think, the Democratic Council, have you ever, in your decades of service, have you ever seen anything like this? Have you ever seen a president using his power in this way? And he said no. You know, I think there were several moments during that hearing. I think one of the other really points that I think came out but hasn't been emphasized as much is what is the United States' role in global affairs because of this, right? Because this is a small country, a fragile country. I'm talking about Ukraine now, a fragile country that was really depending on our aid. And we have made a position of saying we are going to help countries to move into democracies and we're going to help these countries that are fighting, you know, bigger aggressors. And clearly Ukraine just became an object in this case, a manipulation, and I think it really harms our overall foreign policy as well. Well, it has to cause any country that doesn't have something very large to, you know, some of our allies, Germany, France, whatnot, that probably could withstand the kind of political pressure that Trump tried to apply on on the government of Ukraine. But smaller countries all around the world have to be have to be very concerned about how they work things out with the United States now and in the future. And the That's a very troubling thing. Back to picking up your phone calls here. Joe in Cupertino, California, you're on the air with Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. Congresswoman, it's a pleasure to speak with you. You're a real champion for the cause. I follow that, duh, what is it, Doctors for Universal Healthcare website that you're advocating. Mm -hmm. And my my question is, HR 1384 is really well supported. I wish we could get my neighboring Congresswoman Iscow to support it. I think she has some issues with the uh, provisions for -for fee-for-service, as I've read into the plan, that because of the district that we're in and the hospital in our local area being a world-class research institution, I don't think they're willing to settle for Medicare reimbursement, but that's not the issue I'm calling about. Your bill is different. Then Conyers' bill, which was the original, I think it's been updated, and Medicare for All 2019. Senator Sanders' bill, which is basically Medicare for All written 2017, is a very similar, if not identical, but I, I'm just wondering if you, as the author or one of the authors, can explain the difference between that plan that you're offering in the House, Senator Sanders' plan that's sitting, I guess, in the Senate, and the difference between the two candidates, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, both signed off on the Senate bill, but I think they're trying to separate themselves. Can you explain the difference? Because I'm confused. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much for um, thanks so much for the question. So the difference is, so you know, John Conyers' bill six seven six was a blueprint. Um, it was about eighteen pages. It was a single payer resolution and blueprint, but it didn't lay out a full plan. So the Medicare for All Act of 2019, which is my bill in the House, H.R. 1384, is a full and complete plan for how we get from where we are to Medicare for All. And the major difference is we worked with Bernie's office, with Senator Sanders' office, as we were drafting our bill. We wanted to take the best of what the Senate had and then also add a few things that we thought were really important. Um, The major differences are that my bill includes uh, long-term care. Now, Bernie um, did not include long-term care in his. He did do something else that we did. He did take this one change that we had where we flipped the, um, the uh, presumption from 
hospital-based care to community-based care, right? So if you're sick and and you're living your last days of your life, we don't want you to be an institution. Um, We want you to be at home in community-based care or home-based care. And so Bernie did take that provision and put it in his bill, but uh, my bill actually covers all long-term care. So that's a big one. There's another piece, which is around the transition. So Bernie has a four-year transition, and my transition is a two-year transition, which I know some people think is very fast. John Conyers actually had a one-year transition. Um, I looked at a lot of data, and I decided that based on what I had, what I understood and what I had read, that actually we can do a two-year transition, and it will prevent insurance premiums from spiking when they know they're going to go out of the marketplace hmm. for a couple years there in the transition. The longer you have the transition, even though it sounds good, the reality is it allows insurance companies to game the system for the time that you need them to be in that marketplace. So our conclusion was we got to keep that short. That's, and then last one, I hear the music, but we also have global budgeting in ours, which is a real cost containment system, which is not in the Senate bill. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Carol in Seattle. Carol, oh, we're getting a lot of calls from Washington today. Carol, you're on the air with, I believe, your congresswoman. Yes. Hello, Tom and Pramila. I live in Seattle, and Seattle had a plan for homelessness from the Barbara Poppy and Associates back in 2016, and the city has kind of ignored their own plan. So I would like to see that remedied so that we can all fix this issue for the region and therefore the nation. Your thoughts, Congressman? Yeah, thanks, Carol. You know, this issue of homelessness is just so huge across the country. And in the next week or two, a group of us, including Ayanna Presley, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, me, six of us are going to release a package that is around a basic homes guarantee. And we are really excited about this. It sort of redefines the way that the feds think about our responsibility to affordable housing and addressing homelessness. And, you know, in the past, the federal government has just sort of passed money down, right? We put money into the housing trust fund, and then we send it down to the regions and we say, okay, you guys come up with how to spend the money and how to deal with your own housing issues. But we need to do more than that. I mean, the feds also do more than that. I shouldn't be so blithe about it. We also have Section 8 vouchers and things like that. But we need to do more than that. And so we're going to put out a plan that I think really gets at how do we address the affordable housing crisis. Um, And then also we have some other areas around homelessness from tackling opioids, mental health, all of those issues that we're also strengthening. But I think that this is something where I've been trying to work both with the localities, the county, um, the state, but then also try to really shift how we think about the federal government's responsibility in dealing with this crisis that is plaguing all of us across the country. That's great stuff. Paul in Glenside, Pennsylvania, you're on the air with Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. Hi, Congressman. Uh, I wanted to talk about Medicare for All bill that you have presented to Congress. I think you have 118 co-sponsors or so. 119, 119, Paul. We're getting there. (laughs) Oh, and you're counting. Good. I certainly would like to see more. I know that there is a Social Security bill with a congressman from uh, Connecticut. Uh, He has over 200 people. What what can we do around the country to get the uh, Congress people who I think, you know, they're they're busy, they might not like this part or that part of the book. What can we do to get people to 
get on board from your perspective? Oh, it's such a great question to ask a community organizer, which is exactly what I am before coming to Congress. Um, So we need to, first of all, you know, everybody who's listening should check and see whether your Congress member is on the bill already. And you can do that by going to the website, and I'm sure uh, just Google Medicare for All sponsors, co-sponsors, and you'll find the list. Check and see if your Congress member is on that list. If not, um, then get your group of friends together. There are a whole coalition of organizations that are listed on the Public Citizen website as well that you can hook up with and um, go and visit your Congress member. There are um, resources on that website. Our office is happy to help with resources so that whatever questions your Congress member may have, you can answer them or you can help get the answers to them. And then I can also work with them on the inside. But this is really about pushing back on the hundreds of millions of dollars that for-profit pharmaceutical companies and for-profit insurance companies are spending because they know that they have a really good thing going and they don't want it to end um, because they have been putting profits over patients' health for a long time. And so they're pouring money in right now to make it seem like this is not a popular idea or it's not feasible or it's naive. Well, let me tell you something. This is one of the most resilient ideas because every American understands the healthcare crisis we're in, and they are ready for Medicare for All. They just need leaders to help lead, and that's what I'm so proud to do in Congress. There you go. Steve in New Boston, Michigan. You're on the air with Congresswoman Jayapal. Yes, thank you, Congresswoman, and thank you, Tom. I have a question today. Do we not have laws on the books that protect the identities from whistleblowers for obvious reasons that these people would need protection? Thank you for the question. We absolutely do. It is a crime to out whistleblowers. And what's so interesting is that, you know, people are really reacting to to the president sort of trying to target the whistleblower. We have literally decided not to bring in the whistleblower in part because we have no confidence that the Republicans and the president will protect the identity of that whistleblower and also not cause serious harm in some way, you know, uh, by outing him. But the other, of course, is that now we've got so much evidence that's piled up that's all corroborated the whistleblower's account that we don't need the whistleblower to testify. But you're right that we do have laws on the books, and it is really... Um, outrageous that the president and some members of the Republican Party seem willing to um, target this whistleblower for doing exactly what they were supposed to do. And don't forget that the inspector general um, actually said that the whistleblower's report was very credible. And when it was released, if you read the thing, you could see this is not just some casual person making a casual comment. This is a seriously researched, thoughtful, detailed, structured whistleblower report. Josh in Virginia Beach, Virginia, you're on the air with Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. I'm calling because things like Medicare for All really need a bottom-up political revolution. You know, a whole lot of Bernicrats elected to offices at all levels of government. And right now is filing periods are here for these candidates to run. And I don't really see a whole lot of progressives encouraging you know others to run to get on the ballot at this time of the year. And You know, I know Bernie's running for president, so he's really not doing a whole lot of that encouragement, explicit encouragement like he used to. A lot of the online groups, Facebook groups, are sort of all talking about national topics. So my question to you is, how can we 
make this a viral topic to encourage each other to run for offices all over the country at all levels for bottom-up political revolution yeah, in 2020. It, it, it is so important, and I would argue that it's actually happening, and we need to continue to do it. But look at Virginia, right? I mean, this is a state where we elected bottom-up progressives to change the state legislature completely, including the first Muslim American woman in the legislature, the first Indian American, the first trans. And now, because of that, we just passed in Judiciary Committee a bill that extends the deadline to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment and put women's equal rights into the Constitution. That would not have happened without the grassroots movement of people running that probably were told at some point, like I was, that you shouldn't run for office and that you can't get elected. And so it's been really great. In Washington State, in my state, I was the only woman of color in the state Senate. When I went to Congress, I actually worked to recruit and help to win the first Latina woman who took my place. And since then, we've elected a bunch of progressives, community organizers and progressives into the state legislature. And it's and we flipped both chambers now. So I do think it's happening, but you're absolutely right that we have to keep it a focus. It can't just be about the federal government. It has to be about local, even school boards, right? We have to get all the way down into every level of government and continue that bottom-up revolution, grassroots movement to get the kinds of progressive ideas that are going to change the character of inequality and injustice in this country. Josh in Wisconsin, uh, you're on the air with Representative Jaipal. I was wondering if you thought that there were any sort of government actions that could be taken. Uh, I wanted to thank you for backing Medicare for all, first of all. But are there any government actions that could be taken to help quell the media frenzy at times of uh, school shootings and uh, mass shootings? Oh, I know. Thank you for the question. We have taken, you know, the Democratic majority since we got in, we've passed three gun reform bills, including increasing background checks and closing gun loopholes. And we just had a hearing in the Judiciary Committee on the assault weapons ban. We have passed three bills, sent them to the Senate, which I call the graveyard where all good ideas go to die, because, you know, Mitch McConnell won't take up any of these. And it's all because of money and politics. Like the NRA, it has put so much money into buying Republicans votes that people aren't even willing to recognize that gun violence is a public health crisis. We have to treat it that way. We have to fund research into gun violence, and we have to get these guns off the streets and put in safety requirements. I have a bill right now that I just introduced with Elliot Engel around safe storage of guns. This is something that was actually done in one of our local cities in Washington State. We've taken that to the federal level and said, listen, you can have your gun, but you got to store it safely. So there are just so many pieces here, and it's just heartbreaking because it does not need to be the reality that we wake up every day or every week to a new shooting. It's just outrageous, and it is complete disregard for the people of this country when Republicans refuse to move these pieces of legislation. It's amazing that we mandate child safety caps on prescriptions, but not, you know, trigger guards, trigger locks exactly. on guns. And so many children every year are killed accidentally by guns that they found in their parents' bedroom or something. Paul in Woodenville, Washington, you're on the air with Congresswoman Jayapal. Yes, I'd like to go back to the whistleblower. One of the things in Devin Nunes' opening statement, and which was reiterated later in the afternoon by Jim Jordan, that they want to interview the whistleblower and uh, have, get testimony 
And what is gone off the rails here, and the Republicans, including Kellyanne Conway, have said that Donald Trump and the Republicans have a right to face their accuser. Well, I have to point out, the whistleblower is not the accuser. The accuser is the House of Representatives of the United States. And whether the Republicans like it or not, they're in the minority. They may not have voted for that, but that does not make them the de facto public defenders of Donald Trump. And in terms of outing the whistleblower, I'm just but, saying. But I get but, your point. So you want the congresswoman to respond to that? Yeah, I mean, this is this is the thing. They started off, the Republicans started off by demeaning and trying to destroy the credibility of the whistleblower. They basically said, oh, this person doesn't know anything. They're not credible. We're not going to listen to the inspector general who says they're credible. And then when that didn't work and they started seeing all this other evidence and they started to put up this other straw man, right? Well, you haven't brought the whistleblower to testify. Well, why do you need the whistleblower to testify? You said that the whistleblower wasn't credible. You tried to destroy their credibility. Now you're saying you want them to testify, but guess what? So many other people have testified that we don't need the whistleblower to testify. And I thought Peter Welch had a great had a great moment where I think Jim Jordan on the other side said something like, you know, let's bring in the person who started it all. And Peter Welch, a Democrat from Vermont, said, yeah, let's bring in the person who started it all. I'd love to see Donald Trump testify. So I think that is the point here. This is the information is damning, but what is really really damning is the president's behavior. And that's what we have to keep going back to. And we, sh- we can't get pulled off track by red herrings that the Republicans try to throw out or rabbit holes that they try to go down. Yeah. Amen. I want to thank you so much for being with us today and taking Well, thank calls. you. I always love being on your show, Tom, and I appreciate everything that you do to educate the public on so many important issues. My pleasure. <laughs> and thank you. Thank you again for being with us. Yeah, for the you great bet. work you're doing. Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, her uh, website is jayapal, J-A-Y-A-P-A-L dot house dot gov, and you can tweet her at rep jayapal, J-A-Y-A-P-A-L. If you couldn't sleep because of an uncomfortable mattress, you'd buy a new one, right? So why are you still sitting in the same uncomfortable office chair day after day? Take my advice and take your comfort and productivity up to the power of X with the world's finest office chair, the X chair. With 10 customized ergonomic adjustments and patented dynamic variable lumbar support, or DVL, you'll you'll appreciate the X chair difference the very first time you sit down in one. I love my X chair, and trust me, if you're sitting in anything other than an X chair... You're sacrificing true comfort and productivity. Give yourself the gift of an X-Chair. Your body and your bottom line will thank you. X-Chair is on sale now for 100 bucks off. Go to xchairtom.com. That's the letter X, chair, T-H-O-M, dot com. Or call 1-844-4X-Chair. X-Chair comes with a 30-day, no-questions-asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. And you can now finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. Go to xchairtom.com now and use the code XWHEELS for a free set of the new X Wheels with your chair. xchairtom.com. xchairtom.com. Paul in Fairbanks, Alaska. Hey, Paul, what's on your mind today? Well, I want to express my disappointment with uh, Democrats in Congress. They don't know how to flex their muscles. And they don't know how to message. The muscle thing, people that don't show up who are given subpoenas should be penalized. Yes, they should be held in contempt of Congress. Congress. Here's the problem. Those contempt citations would go to Bill Barr, and Bill Barr would refuse to do anything with them. 
He's explicitly said he will refuse to do anything with them. I mean, they've already requested contempt citations against some of these people, and Barr has just not responded. But does that mean you don't go through with No, they're doing the process? it. They are doing it. Oh, they are doing it? Yes. I thought they could also level fines. Yes, the fines are called civil contempt, and that has to go through a court. And, for example, when Obama's attorney general, Eric Holder, refused to testify for like the third or fourth time before a Republican committee, I think it had to do with Benghazi or one of those you know, fake scandals that the Republicans were cranking up. He just said, you know, I'm not going to show up. This is just a show trial and this is silly. I'm not going to show up. The Republicans sued him. They wanted a, you know, a million dollar fine or whatever it was. That took seven years to work its way through the courts, where the courts finally dismissed the charges against Eric Holder. So, yeah, they could fine him, but it could take seven years for it to work through its way through the courts. However long it takes, there are there would still be penalties. Um, And I think they should go for it. Another thing about my disappointment is and my view is that Republicans have the courage to stand up and lie every day. I don't think that I don't think that's courage. I think that's corruption. I think that's criminality. People who lie are criminals, generally speaking. don't have the courage to stand up and tell the truth. I think they're doing that right now, Paul. I think they are doing that right right now. I thought it was spectacular when uh, Adam Schiff read Trump's uh, tweet, which came six minutes after the hearing started, and, you know, trashing Ambassador Yovanovitch. When Adam Schiff read that tweet and said, how do you, you know, what do you think about this? The president just tweeted this and she said, I feel intimidated. And he said, you know, we take witness intimidation very seriously. It's going to be an it's going to be one of the articles of impeachment, witness intimidation. Well, that's a good thing. I mean, I get it that the the Democrats are not pounding their fists on the table, Paul. Keep in mind, the end game here is that there's going to be a trial in the Senate. And these guys in the House, the Democrats in the House, these men and women in the House, they know that if the Republican senators that they're going to need, they're going to need 20 Republican senators to convict Donald Trump and remove him from office. They know that if those senators view this as a purely partisan exercise on the part of the Democrats, they will not be able to join it. They will not be able to vote to convict Donald Trump. Now, the Republicans can play political games all day long. But the Democrats have to look like they are simply doing a solemn, careful, thoughtful, reluctant process to restore the rule of law in the United States. And I think that that's what they're doing. So, Paul, I, you know, I get it that you'd rather have fireworks. And I would, too, frankly, for the pure theater of it. But I think they're doing it the right way. Paul, thanks for the call. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is by Pat Mitchell. It's titled Becoming a Dangerous Woman, Embracing Risk to Change the World. This is from the preface titled The Most Dangerous Woman in the Room. Yes, I'll be there. Eve Ensler was calling with an invitation to what she described as the meeting of movements planned for the first week of January 2017. In the wake of a polarizing presidential election in the United States, Eve had decided it was time for activists to come together to shape strategies that would unify and leverage the collective power of a wide range of social justice organizations. Who else is coming, I asked. I'm not releasing the invitation list, Eve replied, but you'll want to be in the room. Indeed, I did want to be in that room, knowing from past experiences that any meeting or event that Eve organized would be meaningful. So I showed up, as the invitation indicated, at a nondescript building in Stone Ridge, New York, and surrendered my cell phone to the smiling young volunteers at the front door. 
Best to have all communication devices outside the room, was the explanation, which of course heightened my anticipation about what would transpire within the room. I entered a large room and saw Eve standing at the front with folding chairs in a circle. Mingling about the room were some familiar faces. The meeting's other conveners, Kimberly Crenshaw of the African American Policy Forum, Naomi Klein, award-winning author and activist, independent media entrepreneur and journalist Laura Flanders, and Jane Fonda, actor and activist. We were asked to find our seats, and Eve began. We are living in dangerous times, was her opening line, and such times call for new levels of activism from all the communities represented in this room. Let's begin by identifying who's in the room. One by one, the introductions began. I'm one of the founders of the Women's March. I'm the executive director of 350.org. I run Project South. With each introduction, the level of leadership and activists' credentials became more impressive and, for me, more intimidating. I could feel my anxiety building. How was I going to identify myself? I have no title and was no longer running an organization, having left my CEO position at the Paley Center for Media the previous spring. I could say that I was the CEO of Pat Mitchell Media with its grand total of two employees, including myself, but that felt wholly inadequate to explain why I belonged in that room. I mentally rehearsed some other options. I could say I was a lifetime advocate for women, true enough, if a little vague. I could list some of my previous titles, but why make a point of being the former anything? I was struggling with, to come up with how to identify myself in the present an identity that would hopefully give some indication of why Eve had included me in this circle of activists and leaders. Finally, it was my turn. Before I knew it, I heard myself saying, I'm Pat Mitchell, and I'm a dangerous woman. I'm not sure exactly what prompted this personal declaration of dangerousness, but I could tell from the looks of surprise that I needed to add a bit more context. At this time in my life, about to turn 75, I continued, I have nothing left to prove less to lose, and I'm ready to take more risks and to be less politic and polite. As Eve said, these are dangerous times, and dangerous times call for dangerous women. That got a big sisterly yes from Eve and others in the circle, including Jane Fonda, who was sitting across from me, and stood up declaring, well, I'm older than my friend Pat, so that makes me even more dangerous. Laughter erupted, of course, and I could sense that others were contemplating exactly what becoming more dangerous to meet the challenges of dangerous times would mean for each of us and for the work we had convened to consider. Certainly, Jane Fonda's life of activism is a textbook case for being bold and brave. During our many years of friendship, I've I've witnessed her willingness to take risks for a good cause, to speak out and show up, even when it meant personal peril or sacrifice. At 81, she is still on the front lines, campaigning for domestic and restaurant workers' rights, standing with the American Indian communities, protesting natural resource exploitation at Standing Rock, and busier as an actor than ever. In her book, Prime Time, Jane advanced the idea that older women have the potential to become the most powerful population on the planet. She's a great example of how we embrace that potential at every age. My personal potential for becoming dangerous is perhaps more directly linked to my friendship with Eve Ensler. From our first conversation in war-torn Sarajevo in 1998, I've been deeply inspired by her courage and her commitment to do whatever is necessary to end violence against women everywhere. Taking risks comes easier to Eve than to many. Writing and performing the vagina monologues, making it the centerpiece of a global movement, V-Day, to end gender-based violence. 
is a transformative approach to activism that I feel privileged to have experienced. Yes, I was an activist and woman's advocate before I met Eve, but through my relationship with her and as a board member of the V-Day movement, I've met activists facing dangers every day to create change in some of the most difficult places on earth to be a woman. But until that day, I had not felt dangerous myself. Declaring myself a dangerous woman still feels a bit, well, dangerous. And I readily admit to some second thoughts about declaring it even more widely and boldly as the title of this book. But every day since that convening, I'm discovering more about what being dangerous means in my life and why I believe that it's time for us, women and the men who stand with us, at whatever age or place in life's journey, to embrace risks and engage with renewed passion and collective purpose in making the world a safer place for women and girls. Pat Mitchell, Becoming a Dangerous Woman. This is Pat Mitchell, journalist, media executive, producer, curator of TED Women, chair of the Sundance and Women's Media Center boards, trustee of the V-Day movement, and author of an amazing new book, Becoming a Dangerous Woman. Her website is patmitchellmedia.com, and you can tweet her at patmitchell. Pat, welcome to the program. Thank you, John. Great to be with you. Thanks so much for being with us. I found your book fascinating, particularly the introduction where you were telling the story of essentially introducing yourself to this group of women. You want to share that with us? Declaring myself a dangerous woman that day? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Well, it still feels a bit dangerous, Tom, actually. But it came about because I was trying to find a way to identify myself in a circle of activists and leaders. I didn't have a title anymore, and I wanted something that would describe why I was there ready to do the work to make the world safer and better for women and girls. So I just heard myself quite unexpectedly stand up in response to something someone had said earlier, which is, we are living in dangerous times. That just connected with me in a very powerful way. And I stood up and said, well, I'm Pat Mitchell, and I'm a dangerous woman. And then went on to to say, because I think search times call on us to become more dangerous. How are these times, I mean, Donald Trump is the obvious thing, but it's also, I think, apparent to many people this is larger than Trump, or at least I hope so. What do you see as the great dangers of our time that dangerous men and women or in particular, dangerous women, need to be stepping up to and speaking to? Well, one of the most prevalent dangers and one that is on the rise and not decreasing is the amount of violence against women and girls. I work in many places around the world where danger is an ever-present consequence of just being born in that country. But in every country where I work and know communities of women... There are very real dangers, and many of them having to do with the inability to feel safe, safe in our homes, safe in our workplaces, safe in our communities. So clearly ending violence is an absolute essential before we can do anything, step into our power, own our positions, pursue our opportunities. We have to free women of the fear of violence. And when you Add to that the rise in racism as well as sexism and the lack of 
any kind of guarantees of equal justice or even equality in its most basic forms, you have many, many more reasons to recognize the dangers are on the rise, and so are the opportunities, in my opinion, for us to step up against them, speak up against the status quo, and start to shape new policies. What would you say uh, to women who are living in the upper middle class suburbs and voting for Donald Trump? I mean, he took 53 percent of white women. This would be mostly white women. And he's still polling in some places in many states, well above 50 percent among women in those states and particularly in the southern states. What would you say to them in a one on one situation? After I've asked why? Yes. <laughs> Which is a question that I'm asking as I'm going around the country, meeting with many of these communities. In many ways, this vote, as well as our often voting against our own self-interest, there's a construct that encourages us to compete with each other, to compare with each other, which has created a lack of trust among women of communities. So what I say to them is look around at where we have gotten with the current power paradigm and recognize that there are real fears about how this is going for our children and our grandchildren. And we have the ability to change that. But we can't do it alone. And we've been encouraged to work alone and in our silos and to protect our own turf rather than using our turf to elevate other women. So I have some wonderful examples that I've known and witnessed that I'm able to share with these women, which, you know, many times a light will go off when they would say, well, yes, if I had had that kind of mentorship or sponsorship or advocacy at an earlier age, or if I let go of the fear that if I do well, someone else will do not do as well. I mean, that whole win-lose dynamic and the scarcity syndrome, too, which is played into a lot of the politics around uh, women. We're talking to Pat Mitchell. Her new book is called, titled Becoming a Dangerous Woman, her website, patmitchellmedia.com, and you can tweet her at Pat Mitchell. Pat, one of the more interesting um, memes is made, perhaps not the right word, but our slogans or cliches or whatever that's, that's floating around just in the last uh, six months or so is basically a put-down of the boomer generation, you know, I'm a member of, I'm well past Social Security age, by young people by simply saying, okay, boomer, you know, as in, like, you're dismissed. And the media seems to be playing this up a lot. I've seen several articles about it just in the last few days in the New York Times, in the Financial Times, and other places. And yet it seems to me, I mean, you know, doing this radio show for these years that Many of the calls that I'm getting, many of the most active people who participate in this show are either people who are, you know, over at least 55 or so within my generational cohort. I'm 68. Or they're people in their 20s. And there's like this kind of hole between maybe 30 and 55 where people, I think, are just so busy with their families and trying to make a living and this the daily struggle that they're not so much engaged in politics. But this connection. I'm actually seeing a connection between boomers and millennials rather than conflict. And maybe I'm just 
missing something that's going on here. But I'm curious. No, Tom. Your thoughts I on that? I think you're on it. I think you have absolutely identified the potential for the greatest positive and transformative changes that we have in front of us is that this millennial generation who has clearly stepped up and who has said, we're not waiting for the rest of you to come and solve our problems. We're going to take to the streets and we're going to demand action. And then you've got older population and in particular older women who have the potential for being the most dangerous population on earth. And let me tell you why I, that I believe this, but also others have stated it as well. We are potentially the largest population on earth, the fastest growing population on earth, women over 50. We are living longer, healthier. We have more resources than any generation before us by and large. We certainly are better connected. So we have the opportunity to build a global community of activists who now have more time to focus on their community work, their country's needs, having gotten past the responsibilities on a day-to-day basis often of family and sometimes full-time work. So certainly it took me all the way to age 75 to stand up and declare myself a dangerous woman. But certainly I've been involved and engaged in taking risks before that. But I am, in fact, ready to take more risk, ready to take on more challenges than ever before in my life. And, of course, add to that that I am much, much more impatient about everything, especially... (laughs) the rollback on rights and freedoms that we're experiencing. Yes. I share your perspective and your impatience. Pat Mitchell, you've written a brilliant book, Becoming a Dangerous Woman, patmitchellmedia.com. You can find it in your local bookstore. You can tweet her at Pat Mitchell. Pat, thanks so much for dropping by today. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag. You're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 